Good evening. So, little kids out there, your job right now is to whisper to whoever you're sitting by what you think is inside this. If you're a big kid, you can whisper. We'll know here in just a moment. Good evening. Pastor Matt and I have the privilege of opening God's Word this Christmas Eve. Uh, To begin, I'd like you to think back to the year 1415. The year 1415 is actually one of the greatest battles in English history. It's called the Battle of Agincourt or Agincourt. Uh, those of you who don't know, the, the English uh, traveled about 250 miles over a three-week time period where they arrived in northern France. And the English soldiers, when they arrived there, they are outnumbered six to one. Henry V and his men, uh, they now face uh, fresh, rested, and a more than ready French army. And yet, on that day, the English had a technological advantage. What do you think it was? They had what was known as the English long bow. Anybody guess? So the English longbow is actually about six foot, six inches long, where this is only about three feet. Uh, but what's interesting is, though Henry V's soldiers were outnumbered six to one, 80% of the English soldiers were carrying an English longbow. And at a distance, never before in military history, they could stay back and just kill one French soldier after another. And on that day, the English went home with a victory at the Battle of Agincourt in northern France. Tonight, I'd like to think about Jesus Christ as an arrow from heaven. Uh, In many ways, Christ is this arrow from heaven, but you have to think about how different Christ as the arrow from heaven is different than a long bow. The long bow allowed the British to keep their distance from the French. The longbow allowed for a massive amount of death. The longbow and all of its arrows killed its enemies. But Jesus Christ, as God's arrow from heaven, he came to cross the distance. He crossed the distance between heaven and earth. God's arrow came to bring life. God's arrow came to save his enemies. I want to draw your attention to two New Testament passages tonight. The first comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 1, verses 20 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. Matthew 1, 20. It says, After he, Joseph, had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Manuel, which means God with us. Now, some of you know that this is an angelic announcement that comes many months before the birth of Jesus. 
Uh, in many ways, it's such a succinct summary of God's miraculous plan to save humanity. That is, a divine son is going to be born of an earthly mother. Uh, a child is going to be born without sin. He is the God-man. He is the God with us. He's going to come to earth. And all this is to fulfill a 700-year-old prophecy about a virgin con- conceiving and giving birth to the Son of God. Now, our second New Testament passage comes about 50 to 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It comes from John, who at this time is an aged apostle. He had walked the earth with Jesus. He was present at Jesus' crucifixion. He later saw and supped with the resurrected Christ. And this is how John opens uh, a letter that bears his name. 1 John verse, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Listen to what John says. He says that. Notice he doesn't say who yet. He says that. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was from the Father and has appeared to us. Now, John can hardly contain himself as he he attempts to put into words what it was like to walk beside this first century person. He starts by saying, we heard him like with our eardrums. And and then then we, we were able to see him. We saw him with our pupils, our irises, right, our retina. And then it says we touched him, handshakes, bear hugs, maybe tears wiped away. Interesting, he mysteriously leaves Jesus' name absent. It actually doesn't show up until verse 3. But instead he says, this person is the word of life. This This is the word that created all of life. That is the mind behind marvelous creation. The the power that's behind thunderstorms and earthquakes. John says, this is who we encountered on dusty streets in Palestine. He also gives him this title, the eternal life. He says this eternal life has appeared, right? And that eternal life is not so much a thing as it is a person. The abundant, never-ending life is Jesus Christ. So pause with me just for a second and think about Mary holding eternal life in her arms on that first Christmas day. Right? Joseph and Mary, they're, they're cramped in a, in, a, in a stable because there's no room in the inn. They're abandoned, alone, probably afraid, and yet Mary holds eternal life in her arms. She cradles the word of God on her chest. Emmanuel, God with us. If you were here this morning, I mentioned the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia. Let me mention the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's called The Last Battle. Now, in this book, it's very interesting. Uh, at this stage in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the loyal Narnians are in this final battle against traitors. Uh, the story actually begins with this evil ape f- discovering the, the, this lion skin. And what he does is he puts it on a donkey. And he says, oh, there's your king. There's your... And, and the, this evil ape you know, uses this whole concocted scheme to create enmity against Aslan, against the true king. And, but what they do with this donkey is they keep him stuck, stuck in a stable throughout the whole book. You don't, you don't actually get to see the 
king up close. He's in a stable. He just puts out really mean orders. But at the end, by the end of the battle, the loyal Narnians are fighting, and they actually get locked into this same stable. This is where they're supposed to lose. This is, they're caged in. They're about to lose. But once they get inside this stable, they like turn around, and it's like a portal to like a heavenly land, the new Narnia. Uh, and they have this little conversation in the stable, and it goes like this. Tyrion the prince looked around again. He could hardly believe his eyes. There was the blue sky overhead and grassy country spreading as far as he could see in every direction. His new friends, remember they had been, thought they were going to die in the stable. Now they're just laughing. He's, Tyrion says, it seems then, smiling to himself, that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. Yes, said the Lord Diggory. Its inside is bigger than its outside. And then there's a, a human who speaks. Someone who's from our place. Yes, said Queen Lucy. Listen to what she says. In our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. It was the first time she had spoken. And from the thrill in her voice, Tyrion now knew why. She was drinking in everything even more deeply than the others. She had been too happy to speak. Like that's a bit of what's going on when Mary and Joseph cradle Emmanuel, God with us, in their arms. Jesus Christ, the Word of God, could somehow enter the world as a human and yet be bigger than the whole world. Emmanuel, God with us. You know, sometimes it's really important to remember that sometimes what we see with the eye is way more complex beneath the surface. So if children's stories aren't your thing, consider that in 1983, uh, a computer came out called the Apple Lisa. Now, this was, this was a 1983 technological marvel because unlike other personal computers that came out before, this computer didn't force you to work from a command prompt. Instead, it had something called a graphic user interface, a GUI. Now you could take your mouse and, and, and the cursor and you could click on images and files and applications. Now beneath that, beneath that, the computer's doing all sorts of commands and there's all sorts of brilliant coding that's making everything happy. But to simpletons like me who don't understand much about computer besides click here, I'm like, whoa. Right? In many ways, a graphic interface was an act of kindness to people like me. Yes, you computer-savvy people, you don't need this, but I did and still do. And so something very complex is made simple and visible. Now, how much more so is God at work when he takes the eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, son of God, full of love, full of wisdom, and sends him in human flesh? to begin to reveal the glory and the goodness of God. Let me just read to you a paragraph written a number of years ago by a pastor named Charles Spurgeon. As he's just trying to reflect on this idea of the word of God, eternal life, now in, in human form. He says, O oh, marvelous sight, let us stand and look at it. A child of a virgin, what a mixture. There is the finite and the infinite. There is the mortal and the immortal. Corruption and incorruption, the manhood and the Godhead, 
time married to eternity. God linked with a creature. The infinity of the august maker come to the tabernacle on the speck of earth. The vast unbounded one whom earth could not hold and the heavens cannot contain lying in his mother's arms. He who fastened the pillars of the universe and riveted the nails of creation hanging on a mortal breast, depending on a creature for nourishment. This is what John is so desperately wanting his audience to comprehend. His words again, the life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has now appeared to us. Now, John says he's doing two things. He uses two verbs. He says he's testifying and he's proclaiming. Uh, To testify means he's speaking of true observations and experience. Like a witness, he says, I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But that second verb is actually a little more demanding because he says, I'm going to proclaim. When, When someone proclaims something, it's an announcement that demands a response. It's the heralding of news that is supposed to hit our chest and our mind and our lives and never leave us the same. In verse 3, he tells us why. He says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Right? John's letter, the work of the apostles, it's desired to join in fellowship with God and to join in fellowship with his church. He wants this this, this Christmas story, this shocking story of God eternal coming in human form, uh, the, the, to shock us that we would be, want to be moved to know this God that would come to make things right. This is why when you get to the heart of John's letter, he says this. 1 John 4.10 This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Just two thoughts here. Uh, Christmas celebrates God's love. But Christmas does not celebrate human love. In fact, Christmas is an indictment (laughs) that humans don't love God. This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is, God himself had to come and save his people. Emmanuel had to come. Eternal life needed to come to make life available. John testifies. John proclaims. This is life. Do you know this life? Because life comes through believing that Jesus has died for our sins, that he's forgiven us of sins, so that we could be reconnected and be in fellowship with God. So to the longtime Christian, can I ask you not to assume that you grasp the, significant of the, Christmas, the significance of the Christmas story? Like, don't let it get old. God's arrow from heaven has come. Divine inexplicably becomes human understandably. Like something we can grasp. Provision for sin comes in the weakest of forms. Eternal life becomes 
life for us in order to die for us? Think about this. The next time you hold a baby, just recognize that the eternal God, the Son of God, came that vulnerable. The, the God is not far off. In fact, he has come near. God with us, Emmanuel. Long-time Christian, don't let Christmas get old. Like, the magic of Christmas transformed Ebenezer Scrooge. How much more so that the truth of Christmas joy should transform us? And to those who are kind of looking in on Christianity, or maybe you're going out the door, but you're not sure if you're really to go out the door just yet, I invite you to be patient and intentionally inquisitive. (laughs) It actually says that the angels long to look into such things. If angels find God's saving ways marvelous, we should be willing to investigate these marvels as well. Especially since to reject Jesus Christ, it's to reject life. To to stay in our sins, to turn down an offer of fellowship from God. Consider this. I I found out this week that the largest star in the Milky Way, you guys know, you guys are smart people. Anybody know this? I didn't either. Don't worry. The largest star in the Milky Way is called the U-Y Scuti, S-C-U-T-I. This might help you in Trivial Pursuit this week. So astronomers tell us that this star is 1,700 times larger than our sun. That means the U-Y Scuti is so big that if it replaced our sun, it would stretch out to the fifth planet, Jupiter, thus burning Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars to a crisp. They say that 5 billion of our suns could fit inside this star. So 5 billion of our suns could fit inside this star. And to give you an idea how big our sun is, 1 million Earths could fit inside the sun. Now, researchers actually discovered the UY Scuti in 1860. In 1860, they have been studying this star ever since. For instance, they now know that this hypergiant actually fluctuates in size over a 740-day cycle. They estimate that the surface temperature to be around 500,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Friends, that's big and that's amazing. But guess what? If that star blew up, we wouldn't even know it for a very long time. People spend their lives investigating and studying a star that has no daily relevance to their lives. But that baby that was born in a stable 2,000 years ago created that star and the other 100 billion stars with it. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And so this Christmas, let me just invite you to take what God is offering. Through Jesus Christ, we can enter into a relationship with God. Through Jesus Christ, you can get in on the inside of the divine life. Because God's arrow closes the gap. It saves, he saves from death. And he turns enemies into family. Glory to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we marvel at this infant child, the creator of the cosmos, coming to the earth as a man. Fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ, the God-man. The one mediator who could mediate between God and humanity to restore fellowship that had been lost because of our sin and our evil. 
We thank you for this marvelous salvation. We thank you for this opportunity to remember this evening. We pray for each person and each family as they go away tonight that that the, 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 the miracle, the amazement of this God would not get covered up in presents and stockings and candy. But the, those things would all be all the more sweeter because it's a celebration of God's love in, to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time. Glory to God in the highest. Amen.